So they focus on the mosquito in Jurassic Park. Maybe they should have focused on the kissing bug. Yeah. Would have gotten a lot more DNA out of it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to People, Parasites, and Plagues, a podcast aimed at delivering information about the fascinating pathogens among us from the scientists who study them. I am David Peterson. And I'm Kim Klonowski, your host for today's episode. The human microbiome is frequently in the news these days, along with advice about the importance of maintaining a quote-unquote healthy microbiome. Today's guest studies a very different microbiome, but one that's also critical for the health of its host. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Vogel, assistant professor in the Department of Entomology in the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So one thing we'd like to ask our guests is about their path to a career in science. So was science always the plan for you? Yeah, I feel like I was one of those kids who from a very early age knew that I wanted to be a scientist didn't know what that looked like and didn't know what it meant, so kind of went down the traditional, I'm going to go to medical school pathway. But then in early undergraduate, took introductory biology, and that class was very focused on current research, and it just absolutely blew my mind. And, you know, within a month or two, knew that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So did that involve getting into the lab? pretty early on? Did that kind of hone your experience into doing research? So I was really fortunate in that in my sophomore year, I was able to get into a lab studying entomology. Initially, I was a microbiology major, as you can see how these things dovetail. But when I was an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to work in an entomology lab because they hired a lot of undergraduates and sort of rekindled this love of the natural world that I guess maybe I had lost a little bit in my early days of college and late high school. And just absolutely fell in love with working with insects and really after that sought out ways to combine those two things. And I had two like absolutely excellent undergraduate mentors who really shaped and like brought me into the process and kind of guided me on this pathway. So how did they get you excited about working with bugs? That's a good question. I think maybe I was inherently excited about it, but I think what really made the difference of working with them was that I was you know, quickly treated as like an actual important part of the team instead of just, you know, the kid who does dishes or the kid who rears insects. And, you know, it, I think it was just a great combination of personalities. And I think they were just really, really good mentors uh, and knew what they were doing. So one thing I'd like to do off the bat is offer congratulations on your being awarded the NSF Early Career Award. Thank you very much. So that's, that's a huge deal. And you're going to use it with your work on triatomid bugs, which are transmitters of Chagas disease. But I thought we'd start out with having you give an overview of Chagas. So Chagas disease is a eukaryotic parasite, Trypanosoma cruzi. And it's transmitted in a number of ways. But the way that I um, am interested in is that it's transmitted by kissing bugs, which are a group of blood feeding, exclusively blood feeding arthropods. They feed on vertebrate blood, and in the process of taking those blood meals, they can acquire the parasite, which stays in their digestive tract, uh, goes through a complex developmental cycle, and then in subsequent feedings of this bug, when it's feeding on a host, it can defecate, and the parasite's excreted in the feces, and either through the bite wound or through scratching near the bite area or 
uh, close mucous membranes that parasite can then invade the vertebrate host can establish a different infection cycle in another host. Now, these bugs are a lot different from mosquitoes, which are probably the blood-feeding insect most people are familiar with. So they're, for one thing, they're a lot bigger. Much. So a mosquito can take a blood meal of a couple microliters, whereas a kissing bug, some of the species that we maintain in the lab can drink up to a milliliter of blood, so almost a thousand times more. You would definitely notice it uh, if you saw it, but they have a tendency to feed when their hosts are sleeping or inactive, so a lot of the times you don't realize you've bitten, been bitten until you've seen the resultant sore near the bite wound. So one of the things also that distinguishes kissing bugs from mosquitoes is that mosquitoes have complete metamorphosis, right? They go through larval stages and pupil stages and become adults. Kissing bugs don't go through complete metamorphosis, and one of the consequences of that for kissing bugs is that they feed on blood at every stage of their life, as opposed to mosquitoes where only the adult females blood feed. The larvae feed on detritus in water, the males feed on nectar. And so this is the only food source that these insects consume. And that means that they have multiple opportunities throughout their life to pick up these parasites and transmit them because they need to take a blood meal every time they go through a developmental stage. They need to take blood meals every time they reproduce. And also, the interesting consequence of that is that blood is not a great meal to subsist on. And there are other groups of insects that have evolved this feeding habit, and all of them require bacteria to be able to successfully develop. Okay, great, Kevin. So that gets us to your research. And you're looking at the microbiome that's present in these insects. Can you talk about what encompasses the microbiome of these insects? Is it, a, is it like humans where you have a high diversity of organisms? Just tell us a little bit about the basics. Let's start there. Yeah, so what's interesting is this is one of the first systems that people really intensely looked at the microbiome in. It started back in the 20s. And initially it was that, oh, there's this one bacteria and it's super important and that's the symbiont. But then as people started looking at more and more different species of kissing bug, and I should say that kissing bugs, there are about 130 species. As they looked at these other species, every time they looked, they're like, well, it's a slightly different microbe that's living in that gut or maybe it's a couple of microbes and it's not consistent between populations. And then with the advent of modern molecular sequencing, we can survey at great depth these microbial communities. And it turns out if you go out in the wild and you survey these communities, a lot of times there are you know, dozens to hundreds of species of microbes living in their guts. And what we're really interested in is which of those microbes are actually important and which might just be commensals that are hanging out. So again, you alluded to this earlier that the blood meal is not sufficient for the bug to get mm-hmm. all the nutrients. So is the microbiome participating in, again, this mutualism with the the bug itself by helping it with some nutrient sources? Yeah. So the role of these microbes has long thought to have been producing B vitamins. And B vitamins are just depauperate, biologically unavailable in vertebrate blood. And all other insects that exclusively feed on vertebrate blood have bacteria, and those bacteria seem to be able to synthesize those essential B vitamins. And so if we take those bacteria away from the insect, they can't develop because they lack that essential nutrient. So these are important for the successful development of the insect. 
So another part of your work is the interaction between these insect gut bacteria, the microbiome, and the host insect immune response. And these are also hot topics in human disease, human immune response, human gut microbiome. But before we get any deeper here, why don't you tell us a bit about the insect immune system? Because I think it differs quite a bit from animals. Definitely. So insects lack the adaptive immune system that we are familiar with in humans, where you have the cell population can produce antibodies and they have this cellular immunity that allows them to respond more effectively upon subsequent exposure. Insects have an innate immune response that is pretty powerful and is good at fighting off infections, but doesn't have that branch of it. Vertebrates also have an innate immune response, and in some ways these are homologous between the lineages, but it does change the way that we think about things in that it's like, what are the responsive elements of that insect's immune system, and how do they, quote-unquote, learn what's friend and what's foe. And that's something that we're very interested in. Right. And and just to maybe remind people who are immunologists who are thinking about innate immunity, the toll-like receptors were originally discovered, right, in mm-hmm. insects. Right? Mm-hmm. So we know a decent amount about the innate immune response in insects, maybe, maybe not. I'm not. I haven't really followed that, so I don't know how far we've gotten, if it's just the identification of the receptor. Or... We know quite a bit. And what's been fascinating as genome sequencing has advanced is how much variation there is among insects in what the components of these pathways are, how they interact with each other. Obviously, you know, we know a lot about Drosophila melanogaster, and we know a lot about the mosquitoes that transmit diseases because those obviously are hot topics of research. For a long time, it was thought that kissing bugs lacked one whole path of the innate immune response that insects have. Um, and only once we sequenced this genome were we able to actually find those genes. They're very divergent. The immune system is highly pared down relative to certain other insects. So yeah, we're we're on the cusp of really starting to understand what's going on in kissing bugs much more than we used to be able to. Is there anything that's unique in kissing bugs? Not unique necessarily. Uh, what's what's surprising is what they've lost. Lost, right, right. So. And, in, and does it work the same way for insects in terms of, at least I know for humans, is that the immune system also is important for the establishment of the microbiome? So um, there's kind of this crosstalk between, but that's mostly on the adaptive immune side. IgA is very important for setting up the, the commensals that eventually colonize your gut. But does it play an important role of, of kind of selecting what organisms can stay in, as a part of the microbiome? Does the immune system play a role in that? So that's this active area that we're really excited about right now. I don't have a firm answer for you yet. Okay. But that is a main thrust of a research program in our lab is, you know, how does the immune system shape that microbiome? So we know in the bugs that we study that there's this one bacteria, Rhodococcus rodnii, that is very, very important. If they don't have that bacteria, the bugs can't develop. That doesn't mean that there aren't other bacteria that are involved in it, but that's the one that we've been able to focus on, and we've kind of reduced it to this very simple system. And what we'd like to know is how does the host immune system recognize that as not a pathogen? And to be honest, we don't know yet. Uh, So we're actively looking at that. And we think that there are certain genes that are involved. Right now, we're just not in a place that we know it for sure. But we think we've identified some genes that are really important for both maybe either recognizing or allowing that bacteria to adhere to the gut and stay there. 
but we do know that that symbiont doesn't elicit the same immune response as a pathogen does. So you have this one species, Rhodococcus rodnii, which is in Rodnius prolixus. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that single bacterial species alone will allow the, the bugs to uh, mature and survive. But if you add an additional species of bacteria, will the bugs grow better or do you just need that one and that's it? So from our results in our lab with our colony, it seems like that one bacteria is both necessary and sufficient. And in fact, when we have more complex communities, the fitness of the bugs decreases slightly, significantly, but slightly. Uh, they lay fewer eggs. It takes them a little bit longer to reach adulthood. You know, they're still healthy, and that's how we normally rear the bugs in the lab. But when we are really careful and we make sure that they only have this one bacteria in them, that's when they seem to have, like, peak fitness. But again, that's a lab thing, and probably in the wild is not likely to exist. Ah, okay. And I think you've also shown that this this one symbiont, the uh, Rhodococcus rodnii, actually grows better in the gut than other related bacteria? Yeah. So again, this might be related to the immune system, and we don't really know. But when we inoculate the bugs with the same amount of various different bacteria, Rhodococcus rodnii reaches much higher concentrations titers than other bacteria. Some bacteria are quickly purged from the gut, and whether that's that they just can't hang on and they get washed out uh, through digestion, or whether the immune system is attacking them, we're still investigating that. We think it might be a little combination of both. So if you, so this bacteria is so important. If you target this bacteria, do you basically eliminate the vector? Is so, that kind of the idea behind that? So it's interesting because in reality, what we want to do is support the bacteria. And there's been a lot of work done um, by some folks at the CDC back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where they took that bacteria and they genetically altered it to produce an anti-trypanosomal molecule. And then they infected the bugs with that bacteria. And then they were resistant to being infected with T. cruzi. Um, Sounds like a great answer. It does. And then the best part about it was is that they then took this and, you know, how do you then apply this in a field setting? And what they came up with was basically artificial kissing bug poop. And they would spray this in these mesocosms and in these test houses and then see if the bugs could pick up the bacteria and then whether those bugs maintain that ability to fight off T. cruzi. And they did. They called it CruziGuard. And um, unfortunately, for a number of reasons, that never got commercialized or never got deployed. I don't even think it was meant to be commercialized, but it was never deployed in the field at, at scale. I think people were a little bit afraid of the idea of releasing a genetically modified bacteria into the environment. And, you know, once it's out of the bag, it's out of the bag. Right. And we think about people who get their panties in a knot about things like genetically modified crops, right, mm -hmm. to produce a better, you know, tomato or, or corn or whatever we're talking about. And now we're talking about releasing an organism. I can only imagine, you know, some of the pushback. Yeah. And our bacteria doesn't fall under this umbrella, but it is related to bacteria that can cause disease in humans. Mm -hmm. um, so the ability of bacteria to shuttle genes between themselves is a real concern. Right. And you're introducing a gene that perhaps makes it more 
pathogenic. Probably unlikely given what it was targeting, but my understanding was that that was the major reason why it never really took off. Yeah, and that makes sense now, now with that information, sure. So I think one of the findings of your work was that um, the host immune genes, which we've alluded to already, are actually upregulated in kissing bugs that are colonized by this Rhodococcus rodnii compared with bugs that don't have any bacteria, that it almost seems counterintuitive. If you want to keep the bacteria around, why upregulate these immune genes? Or am I overthinking this? No, uh, you got that right. And we're really fascinated by this because it seems that when the insects are infected with their symbiont, they're almost supercharged in their ability to fight off other pathogens. Whereas if you take that symbiont away, they're incredibly susceptible. Like when we challenge them with a pathogen, if they don't have their symbiont, it's almost 100% lethal 100% of the time. Whereas if they have that symbiont, even against pretty virulent pathogens towards these bugs, we still get 75, 85% survival. And some of that seems to be due to increased expression of immune genes. And some of it right now seems to be related to increased presence of immune cells. So insects have cellular immune responses where you have these specialized blood cells that go around and have various ways of killing parasites and pathogens in their uh, bodies. So when they have the symbiont, that immune system seems to be supercharged. So are these are these analogous to like a macrophage? What would be the, the kind of closest thing that we would know? In... Not knowing very much about vertebrate immune systems. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, so we're talking, we're, we're, this is a good conversation, right? Because I'm coming from the vertebrate immune system and you're coming from the invertebrate and trying to... <laughs> You can see we're dancing around. Yeah. Mike, I don't want to say anything that makes me sound too stupid. Yeah, so they have cells that are capable of phagocytizing mm -hmm. bacteria and viruses. They have cells that can attack larger bodies that will encapsulate the pathogen and kill it that way. They also will melanize things, so they produce something called melanin. And melanin is pretty toxic to bacteria. So right now what we know is that the hemolymph of those bugs by itself with no cellular components in it is m lethal to certain bacteria. We've tested that in vitro. And then in other circumstances in vivo, we see increased production of these immune cells in the bacteria, in the bugs that have their symbionts relative to the ones that don't. And then the other thing that we've done is we've used bacteria that are not symbiotic but are not pathogenic. So E. coli kind of hangs out, doesn't really do anything. Some of the bugs will survive to adulthood and reproduce, but not nearly as many as when they have Rhodococcus runei. And E. coli doesn't seem to be capable of doing this. Um, so it's there, probably serving some nutritional function, can produce some of the B vitamins they need. But from the immune standpoint, that doesn't seem to, to do the trick. So there is a, an amazingly close interaction between the host and the bacteria here. Uh, the bacteria is necessary. It has a very specialized place. So the, the, the I'm using bug in for too many things here, both, <laughs> both the host and the gut bacteria. <laughs> so the host bug basically has, gives the bacteria special dispensation to survive, and the bug provides 
necessary nutrients, and the host says, okay, even if I upregulate my immune system, I'm leaving you alone. Yeah, and we're not, one of the questions we have is, is this just a function of this bacteria is immune to those responses, right? Right. Using the using immune in a bad way here, but is the bacteria resistant to host immune responses? That's something that we're actively looking at right now. I don't have an answer for you yet, but it seems that it's possible that there's something about this bacteria that masks it from the host immune system, but then how does it trigger this differential immune response? Mm-hmm. Um, so. And there's no other uh, member of the biome that's related to it that that you can look at the differential to kind of see if it's specific to that particular organism? So we do have this really cool situation where we have what we think is the closest known relative of this bacteria. And it's called Rhodococcus triatome. It was isolated from a different kissing bug. And so you have this other bacteria that was isolated from another kissing bug. And the first thing we said is, oh, well, what if we put that in Rodney's prolixis, does it work as a symbiont? And it doesn't. Like, it's lost very quickly from the gut community. And we haven't yet tested whether or not it functions in this immune way, but we're guessing that it probably doesn't. And they share 85, 90% of their genes. So that narrows it down quite a bit in terms of what might be different between these. We have some ideas, but... Right now, they're all just speculative about what's going on. But that's definitely, I have way too many projects (laughs) and not enough money or people, even with these grants, I'm like, I need more. (laughs) But yeah, that's one of the areas that I'm really interested in. We actually have a a new postdoc just joined my lab. And one of the things she's going to be looking at is what happens when you put symbionts from different kissing bug species into a new species and see, does it still function? And so that's the... I think that's the first project she's about to tackle is because we also have the species we think that that bacteria, that other sister bacteria was isolated from in our lab in colony. So, oh, okay. So yeah. it can do the reciprocal. Right, exactly. So. So how long have these bugs been around and been transmitting disease? Oh, I should know this off the top of my head, but I, I believe that they're thought to have evolved somewhere between 50 and 60 million years ago. So in the bug world that's not super old they are they evolved out of a lineage of predatory bugs that assa- so they are assassin bugs they're reg- uh, regivids and probably some of you listening have seen a regivid in your yard in your garden mm-hmm. they're great predators mm-hmm. and we think that they evolved as insect predators in the nests of vertebrates and then one day they just realized there's this big you know defenseless thing sitting right here that's a lot easier to eat than another insect that's running around. They're endemic to the New World. The vast, vast majority of species are only found in Central and South America and Mexico. So yeah, they're they're somewhat newcomers. They're not near like the tsetse flies, which have been feeding on vertebrates for a much longer period of time, we think. So so knowing that, are there, uh, has this organism, has this microbial organism that's in the the bug of the bug, if you will, Mm -hmm. It, has it evolved with the insect? Do you know I, from like aged I, bug experiments, zombie mummy bugs, if you will? I don't think that they're, I don't know um, if anyone's found that. 
my training is in looking at more ancient associations and more obligate associations between insects and their symbionts. And we don't necessarily see the hallmarks in the genome of the bacteria that we would expect of like a vertically transmitted obligate intracellular symbiont, like the symbionts of aphids mm -hmm. or the symbionts of tsetse flies. So tsetse flies also feed exclusively on vertebrate blood and also have bacterial symbionts that are necessary for their development. Those bacteria are transmitted from other offspring with super high fidelity and primarily live intracellularly in the host, whereas ours live free living in the gut. Mm. And so the symbionts of tsetse flies have these hallmarks of an obligate bacterial symbiont, whereas our bacteria does not. So we don't have fossil evidence that I know of, but again, I'm not a paleo entomologist. I think that's probably a field. Should don't, be. Um, I, it must be. But genome-wise, it doesn't look like it's one of these super old associations. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that we don't think that there is co-evolution between the host and this bacteria. There was a paper not from my group, but from another group recently that found members of the genus Rhodococcus are universally present in members of the kissing bug genus Rodneus. So there are a bunch of species in Rodneus. They surveyed their microbiomes. Every single one of them had Rhodococcus in it, which suggests that there's some sort of specific association. And our lab results sort of support like a functional reason for that, that these bacteria are able to persist in the gut better than others. So these kissing bugs, given how long ago they evolved, they could have fed on woolly mammoth, giant sloth, saber-toothed tigers, maybe dinosaurs? Again, I'm, I'm skeptical, not skeptical. I'm hesitant to say what, to put a specific date on it. But yeah, it seems my, again, my understanding is that they are ancestrally mostly associated with birds. So, but again, I'm, so not, I'm not confident about that. So. Dinosaurs could be in the mix then. Could be. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. I think it's, you know, we're talking non-avian dinosaurs, but. So they focus on a mosquito in Jurassic Park. Maybe they should have focused on a kissing bug. Yeah. Would have gotten a lot more DNA out of it. <laughs> so our guest today is Dr. Kevin Vogel from the Department of Entomology. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Links to additional information about Dr. Vogel's research can be found on our Instagram account, which is at pppodcastuga. Thank you for tuning in today. Please rate the podcast, and if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us via email at ppp.uga.edu. This podcast is brought to you by the Faculty of Infectious Diseases and the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. It is supported by the University of Georgia through the Office of Research, the UGA Graduate School, and the College of Veterinary Medicine. Thanks to the New Media Institute at Grady for use of their Studio Not Found podcast facilities, and a special thanks to our production assistant, Sid Wigand, for research, editing, scheduling, and keeping us on track.